there's a discussion going on right now about Mosul, about preserving, you know, or trying to reconstruct historic sites. Is that really what the local population wants, or do they really want their houses rebuilt, etc.? So, you know, it's really good to be aware of the ongoing conversation and what the local values are. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Corey Wegner. She's the director of the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, SCRI, an outreach program dedicated to the preservation of cultural heritage in crisis situations in the U.S. and abroad. She's a former member of the Civil Affairs Community for the Army, former CA officer, and has been working extensively on projects in Syria, Iraq, Haiti, Nepal, and elsewhere throughout the world. Corey Wagner, thank you very much for being on the One State Podcast, and welcome. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. So we met uh, 2015 when we were doing, it was my first introduction actually to the uh, Civil Affairs World uh, training session at the Smithsonian. Uh, so you were working there at that time, and you walked us through the essentially the history of the uh, laws regarding cultural preservation talked a little bit about the modern-day mission of Monuments Men, because I think this was shortly after the movie had come out, um, and it was still pe- fresh in people's minds, so we made that connection as well. And then we went out to a, a satellite location, I guess, for the Smithsonian, where a lot of items are preserved and maintained, and we talked sort of hands-on about um, that process for preserving cultural heritage. I thought it was amazing training. I think it's something that a lot of other CA soldiers and, and Marines should be able to go through, especially in the D.C. area. We're kind of fortunate to have so many federal agencies right there. So I, I want to get to some of those items later in the conversation. But first, talk about um, your connection to civil affairs. So you retired as a major in the Army Reserve. You spent 13 years in CA. I wanted to ask you who or, or what brought you into CA? I was, well, first of all, I enlisted um, right out of high school in the Army Reserve, and I did a couple different things. And then I got my uh, ROTC uh, commission, and I was in the Quartermaster Corps, and I went to the first Gulf War. I deployed to Germany, which was awesome, but I also was a little bit bored and thought I missed out. My undergrad was in political science. I learned about civil affairs, and it kind of seemed like an obvious fit for me. I was living in Kansas City, Missouri at the time, so I switched branches and I went to the 418th Civil Affairs Battalion. So with that emphasis on political science and the cultural landscape and, you know, understanding what's going on in the communities that we're engaged in, I was hooked. And I also made my husband Paul switch branches as well. (laughs) He was also a Civil Affairs officer. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So you've been working in cultural heritage for quite a while. Can you talk to people about what cultural heritage means and who says whether something is worth preserving? Well, yeah, that last part is the really tough one, right? Because it can be different people can have different values depending on, you know, even in the same community, people can have different values. For instance, just the conversation about civil war memorials here in the United States, and that's just one example. But so cultural heritage is what we inherit from past generations that really informs our sense of identity and community and history, how we see ourselves. 
It's also what we create now and hand down to future generations. So it can, a lot of people divide cultural heritage into two parts. There's tangible that you can touch, see, and feel, and then there's the intangible, things we know or things that we express. Tangible heritage can be museums with all kinds of different collections of art, history, archaeology, scientific collections, or libraries, archives, cultural and historic sites and monuments, cemeteries, um, architecture, even whole urban landscapes of buildings that are historic, and also um, archaeological sites. So, and then there's so that subset. Some people also call cultural property which is important when you think about the Hague Convention, which I think we're going to talk about maybe a little bit later. But, And then there's the intangible expressions like music, dance, and poetry, and also craft and traditional practice like cooking and recipes or traditional craft making. And then even you know the really important ones like wine making and beer brewing. Those are all forms of intangible cultural heritage that we pass down. Okay. So I, I see why the Smithsonian cares about preserving cultural heritage. It's it's connected to the mission of the Smithsonian. But there is an overlap with civil affairs and the Department of Defense. Why does DOD care about cultural heritage? I think DOD should care about it or does care about it in part because it's an international treaty, of course, um, the 1954 Hague Convention. So it's part of the law of war. It's the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in Armed Conflict. So what we just talked about, the tangible and intangible, the Hague Convention doesn't really protect intangible heritage, but mostly the tangible, um, the sites, museum collections, etc. Another interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize is the Hague Convention of 1954 was drafted in the aftermath of World War II, and a lot of the elements of it, they were looking back to what they considered the successful work of the Monuments Men in World War II. So there was a lot of input from people who observed that that protective element of what they were trying to do and thought it was a good thing. So hence the treaty. Um, but implementing the protections of Hague isn't the only. It's not just about compliance with international law. I think DOD and military operators should be interested in it because it's also part of understanding the civil information environment. Cultural heritage is a subset of cultural awareness. So it's not enough to know, you know, how to drink tea or, you know, that you should avoid showing the soles of your shoes in a meeting if you're in the Arab world or things like that. Cultural heritage is more. It's like knowing where these religious and historic sites are located establishing the connections with those cultural caretakers and understanding the local value that populations place on these sites. And that can make or break mission success if you choose poorly. So it's particularly true in ethnic and religious conflicts, as one would guess. So it's part of governance, too, because unlike the United States, most other countries in the world have a ministry of culture. And so the management of all those cultural sites is a government responsibility. Okay. So I think that's why DOD should care about it. Do you think that, so you talk about how DOD should care about it. Has DOD been caring about it for the last several years? Yeah, I think we're definitely miles ahead of where we were, say, for instance, in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. There was there was attention paid to the planning, but then the execution, we just, you know, didn't have enough people and there wasn't enough attention paid to the particular sites. And there are a lot of good, viable reasons for that. 
And I think we learned a lot from that. Like, it can really be a bad thing if internationally there's this attitude that the U.S. didn't care about Iraq's cultural heritage enough to protect those sites. And so it's been a gradual thing, but I think they do care about it more now. There's become many different training programs. Um, the Marine Corps uh, CMO School at Quantico teaches 12 hours of cultural property protection in their civil affairs school. The U, um, SWIC teaches some cultural heritage elements as part of their training and especially in their field training for the CA school. So it's gradually becoming more and more. There's stuff in, in various field manuals. We actually have GTA 41-01-002 Civil Affairs Arts Monuments and Archives Guide that's available out there both online and in print. So, but you know, I think we could do more. I know the 38 Golf Program has cultural officers as part of that program and I wish we had more of those and that there was a way for them to come together and train together more. But overall, we're making progress. That's good to hear. So you mentioned uh, the connection to Iraq. Could you talk about what happened during and after the 2003 looting of the Iraq National Museum? Yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. I know the the, the 352nd Civil Affairs Command was the um, command that was deployed for that mission, and I wasn't with them at the time. I was actually scheduled to go to Afghanistan with my unit at the time, which was the 407th out of um, Minneapolis. And... I mean, the story's out there for anybody who wants to read about it in various books about the, the invasion of Baghdad and what happened with the general looting around the city. And the Iraq Museum was one of the many places that was looted by sort of, you know, the local population. But the Iraq Museum was a little tough because there was some insider knowledge about where to find some of the hidden storage areas of the museum. The museum staff had worked really hard to evacuate collections out of the galleries and into hidden secure storage. And as as um, some of your listeners probably already know, that Iraq Museum uh, in Baghdad was the repository for the entire country, the, the flagship museum of Iraq, and held some of the most important collections of ancient history of humankind there, ancient Mesopotamia, and the the knowledge of some of those looters to go in and find that material and take it out. They lost thousands and thousands of objects, and looters also smashed a lot of objects in, you know, for whatever reason, as, as looters are wont to do. But in some cases, it was because they displayed images or um, imagery of the human form, things like that. So it was really a terrible situation. I got called up a few weeks later and went, it was the fastest deployment I ever had. I only spent one week at Fort Bragg getting my shots and, pre, you know, shooting and all the pre-deployment. And I went directly to Baghdad to join up with the 352 and started working at the museum with the civil affairs team there on the ground and trying to advise about stabilization of the museum. Okay. Were um, you there as an, an arts monuments and archives officer at the time? Yes, I was. I was. I was one of. I was the designated as the arts monuments and archives officer as the liaison to the museum, and we had several other projects around the city, as well. But that was my main function, and I served as liaison between the staff there and other international organizations trying to come in and assist. But it was tough because 
there just wasn't that deployability for the type of organizations that can help in a cultural situation in the same way there are for humanitarian aid organizations. There was really no Doctors Without Borders for coming to help us with the Iraq Museum, and wait as I might, they didn't really come. <laughs> so we had to, it was a gradual process to get expertise in there to assist besides just myself. I had some colleagues from the British Museum and some colleagues from uh, the Italian Ministry of Culture, mm-hmm. but it was a slow process. Okay. So you mentioned there's no group like what uh, Doctors Without Borders have. So that's 2003, and then 2006, you founded the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield, so it sounds like you created an organization to do what you just described had been missing previously. So what does that Blue Shield symbolize? And can you talk about, is the U.S. committee connected to a global organization like the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, is the U.S. affiliate for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies? Yes, there's a, there's a definitely a link and a similarity. So The International Committee of the Blue Shield was formed in the 90s as a response to the intentional destruction of cultural property in the Bosnian conflict. Um, The Blue Shield, I should say, is the the organization is named for the Blue Shield symbol that's designated in the Hague Convention for the protection of cultural property, as well as personnel who are who are working to protect cultural property. So it's very similar to the Red Cross is the international symbol for the Geneva Conventions and for personnel. The Blue Shield is the symbol for the Hague Convention for protection of cultural property. Okay. Um, there, so the international organization existed, but it wasn't really deployable. It was more about policies in individual countries for implementing the Hague Convention. And some of the Blue Shield organizations focus on natural disasters in their own countries as well, just much like the Red Cross also does natural disasters in individual countries. So I learned at the time when I went to Iraq, and I'm still ashamed to this day that I didn't know it, but in 2003, the United States had never ratified the 1954 Hague Convention. We followed it as customary international law, but we hadn't ratified. And this caused a lot of problems um, in my office with the with the Coalition Provisional Authority, we were the, the office representing the Ministry of Culture for Governance, and we worked in a coalition office with Italians and, and Brits. Um, the Brits had not ratified either, and the Italians were like, wow, you know, we, we are not working under the same set of standards and rules for the law of war, and, you know, the Italians were pretty upset <laughs> about the damage to cultural heritage sites. So they were, that's partly why they were part of our office. So when I came home, I thought, wow, it would be great if, first of all, if the U.S. ratified the convention, but also if we were able to get the cultural community to liaise better with the military community because I felt like there was as much responsibility on the cultural professional side. How does the military know how to implement the Hague Convention? They need someone to explain where are these cultural sites? How do we find them? What do we need to do to protect them? So there's responsibility across the board. And that's what the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield was designed to do. To, we, we formed partly in order to lobby for ratification, but our first big task was to help train particularly civil affairs units preparing to deploy in that high op tempo time, 2006, 2007, 2008. We were a mobile training team of archaeologists and art historians going to help train people 
during their pre-deployment so that they would have more knowledge and understanding of the environment that they were going to. And that was my big goal, to help civil affairs better implement their responsibilities and better accomplish their mission. It sounds like a fascinating mission and a a great connection between civil affairs and what many listeners may recall as more of an activist version of Indiana Jones. Um, (laughs) Very exciting stuff. Uh, Folks, you've been listening to Corey Wagner, director of the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative. After the break, we'll come back and ask Corey about um, how she believes the Blue Shield has been progressing. If they're making progress, we'll connect to the Monuments Men mission and also talk a little bit about black market selling of antiquities. We'll be right back. Let me tell you about the Civil Affairs Association, the main sponsor of the 1CA podcast. It was established in 1947. The Civil Affairs Association is a veterans organization serving professionals of the U.S. civil affairs community. Members have served or are currently serving in the armed forces or are the descendants of those who serve. As a tax-exempt organization, the association operates within the guidelines of Internal Revenue Code Section 501c19. It is organized for educational, professional, fraternal, and social purposes. The association promotes esprit de corps and disseminates relevant information. The CA Association also serves as an advocate for civil affairs within DOD to ensure an adequate capability to perform any mission assigned or task to the CA community. Membership costs are low. E1 through E4 pay only $5 a year. E5 through E9 pay $20. Cadets and midshipmen pay $10. And officers and civilians pay $25 a year. Life membership is also low. Pegged now at $200. So if you're committed to the CA community, then it makes a lot of sense to invest in a life membership and save in the long term. Welcome back to the 1CA Podcast. We're here with Corey Wagner of the Smithsonian. Corey, could you talk about whether the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield has been making progress? It stood up in 2006. Since then... Would you say that uh, it's been a success? Yeah, I definitely say so. Um, we spent some time working with legislators who asked for more education about the Hague Convention and why the U.S. should implement. We put together a coalition of cultural heritage organizations like the American Association of Museums, the Archaeological Institute of America, the American Archives Association. So we had many different organizations come together to say, here's why we think cultural property is important and why the U.S. should be a member of the treaty. And in 2009, we achieved that goal. The Senate went ahead and ratified, and it was signed. And uh, we submitted that to the UNESCO, which is the administrator of the treaty, in 2009. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Um, So we had a lot of other... um, missions, like I said, to to do military training, but then also we realized that sometimes when preparing uh, for the planning for military missions that there might not be that information about cultural sites that was necessary for the no-strike list or the um, protected target list. I'm not sure exactly what we're calling it at the moment, but it comes under various names, but how does 
how does the Defense Intelligence Agency know where to find these places? Uh, their staff are working on no-strike lists of all kinds for humanitarian responsibility. But So we started putting these together, and we had our first big success with the Libya no-strike list, which we literally put together over the few days when we realized that there was going to be a potential allied um, strike against Libya, and we were able to submit that about 24 hours out from the actual operation. But we, we later did a connection to learn that they actually did have it. Since then, the Blue Shield has submitted a number of lists of cultural sites for a number of countries, and we're working closely with colleagues at the Defense Intelligence Agency to ingest those and verify those sites so we have good lists going forward. So that's one of the other big big successes of the Blue Shield, I think. Does the Blue Shield use some advanced technology to identify the artifacts, to, uh, to geocode the location? And how does that information go into a database that's shared? So we use a lot of different sources of geographic information systems. It'll depend. Archaeologists are very sophisticated in using tools like ArcGIS, and they often have very comprehensive lists of their archaeological sites because that's how they find them out in the desert, right? They use GPS to, to figure out what the, what the boundaries are of their archaeological sites, and these are often published in their archaeological records. So we worked with various archaeologists. For instance, we worked with to create the Libyan strike list. One of our primary sources was Dr. Susan Kane, who was an archaeologist who had worked in Libya. We worked with people who had excavated in Syria, Iraq, um, and a number of other countries. But when it comes down to finding the geographic coordinates of places like the library downtown or the local cultural history museum, it gets a lot harder. So we're working with the um, with International Council of Museums, and we have actually a research project that we're doing in conjunction with the University of Pennsylvania and the Smithsonian to, to do a list of all the museums in the world. It's a big task, but gradually we're pulling together the, these lists from different countries, and we have a huge army of interns that are helping us do this <laughs> good good use of the interns there yeah exactly um are there cases where forces opposed to the united states or u.s interests take advantage of of locations that you would like to preserve that would that would be on a a, a list to not be bombed for example and locate their forces or command and control nodes close to them knowing that they're going to be on a no-hit list yeah, that's definitely true. There were examples of that. For instance, in Libya, that one of the proofs is of the success of it, we think, is that there was a, a radio operation very near one of the sites that we had listed on the no-strike list. But, you know, advanced munitions kind of allow that very refined targeting to be able to kind of get around that sometimes. I mean, for the most part, we've been very successful in that. But the opposite is, for instance, the conflict in Syria when it was, you know, as a civil war, there's been a lot of back and forth taking of cultural sites and they're, you know, getting heavily damaged when both sides are using them for military advantage. And then the other thing to remember is that often um, a historic fortress is there because it's in a point of strategic advantage or, you know, a minaret 
is the best vantage point for the whole space around the city. And so these are often used for a military purpose. And then they lose their protection once you start using them for a military purpose to fire from or something. And um, it's a complex thing when both sides are using cultural property and it tends to get destroyed. Yeah. Cultural heritage is also a flashpoint for power, right? If I if I control this, then it shows my, you know, that I own this space and that, you know, or I might wipe out your cultural heritage to supplant it with my own. Wow. So if a enemy force, for example, takes control of a location that may have been in the past a uh, military outpost or is certainly being used as one now, what, uh, I guess the rules of engagement for a commander on the ground would say, well, okay, it's, it was on the no-strike list or is, but they're firing at me so I can now engage and I can destroy whatever I need to. Is that right? Yeah. Well, the doctrine, there's a doctrine called the doctrine of military necessity that says it's like the sniper in the bell tower, right? You can protect yourself. You don't have to just let somebody shoot at you from a cultural site. Um, but the, the point of what we're trying to teach is, yes, you can probably, um, it's lost its cultural protection and then, you know, you may fire back, but there's also proportionality and all the other factors under the law of war. But also we hope that it's, that the commander's able to make an informed decision. Yes, I could shoot back, but I have to take into consideration, you know, what other factors will follow on, what more could happen after that. Okay. So it's just, you know, making an informed decision is important, but military necessity is always the rule. Okay. Corey, you talked a little bit about Monuments Men. Uh, that was a 2014 movie directed by George Clooney. He starred in it as well as did many other actors and actresses. And, and we talked about it at the very start of this podcast how that's how we met. There was some modern-day monuments training. How is that mission connected directly to civil affairs in terms of what is being taught and how it's being taught to Marines and to soldiers? For example, you've mentioned that some of the Marines have in their CMO course 12 hours. Is that theory or is that hands-on training for how to catalog what those items are and how to preserve them? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So the, the training that they get there... Um, a lot of times they end up going over to the museum there, the Marine Corps Museum at Quantico, and doing some work there very similar to the course that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that the Smithsonian put on for your unit. They get some uh, history of the Monuments Men and the history of cultural property during wartime, um, the 1954 Hague Convention, which we mentioned earlier, understanding the doctrine of military necessity, understanding um, the military aspects of Hague and what is cultural property and how to find it, but then also the more practical hands-on. So for the Marine Corps, they have colleagues come from the Navy historical uh, museums and the conservators come from Richmond to help teach them and they run a, a hands-on exercise very similar to the one that you guys did when you came to the Smithsonian. Well, that's fun. Yeah, it, was, it was a great time and it was uh, very interesting to see from a different perspective about what items you need to put down to say that it, how you can describe as accurately as possible how some piece of artwork is different from anything else. If you can take a photo of it, that's certainly worth a thousand words. But if you have to write it down on a piece of paper, if you don't have a camera available or a video recorder, 
how do you heck do you, you put that down accurately so that someone else behind you can know, oh, that's the right piece of material. Um, and as you say, choose wisely uh, between what is of significance and what maybe lo- people in the local culture would say, yeah, we can throw that away. That was made last year in some of the location. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be, to put that into you know practice right now, there's a discussion going on right now about Mosul, about preserving, you know, or trying to reconstruct historic sites. Is that really what the local population wants or do they really want their houses rebuilt, etc.? So, you know, it's really good to be aware of the ongoing conversation and what the local values are. Yeah. Corey, there's also a huge black market for sales of antiquities and terrorist organizations use them to finance operations. They sell artwork that's that, that they've stolen or they bought from someone else and they're reselling. Could you talk about the scale of that problem? Is it getting worse or getting better? So, yeah, there was a, a lot in the news about terrorist organizations benefiting from illicit traffic of antiquities, and that's that's true for sure. There was evidence uh, from the Abu Sayyaf raid by U.S. Special Forces of ISIS trading in illicit traffic of antiquities. They also sold the looting rights to areas in Iraq and in Syria. Um, They benefited from that by just, you know, giving licenses to loot. They didn't have to even transport things themselves. They benefited and made money off of that um, from the ground. They didn't have to, you know, go to New York and sell something in order to do it. But yeah, things are popping, popping up on the market. And also, but I want to point out the destruction of the scientific record that occurs from that. So when when the license to loot a place or just generic looting, because, subsistence looting, because the political instability in the area, the authorities are unable to guard those sites themselves, the damage is just catastrophic because archaeological sites are supposed to be excavated in a scientific way so that you understand you found this coin, you know, this many feet down when you were excavating, and that can show you the date of all the other things that are found in that area. Looters don't keep records like that. They just rip things out of the ground, tunnel through, and it's a loss for all of us and the historic context of those objects. And then when they show up on the market, you know, the, the poor people who, who found them sell them for pittance so they can subsist, but then as they go up the chain and they're illicitly trafficked out of the country and into buyer countries like the United States and the UK and, you know, the Emirates, whatever, wherever they end up, then the prices can be really high. You've been involved with the preservation of cultural heritage for quite a while. Would you say over that time that the U.S. and other countries are making progress or regressing? And what's holding the U.S. back from making more progress? I think we are making progress. It's slower than I would have hoped. Um, I'll, I'll tell you my, my secret is that back when I left Iraq in 2004, I was just sure I'd be going back to visit as a tourist, you know, before too long. And now I haven't been back in that museum since then. I've been to Erbil and other parts of Iraq. But I think what our progress has been understanding the problem We've ratified the convention, and we've we've made a lot of progress toward implementation and um, training military and trying to stop illicit traffic of antiquities. There's a lot of work that's been done by Immigration and Customs Enforcement folks, the FBI art crime team, and many other great law enforcement. But 
some of the things that we don't see, like the everyday degradation of sites because of the conflict and instability in these countries, the lack of resources, because all the resources get diverted to caring for refugees, which is really important. And, um, you know, fighting ISIS, a lot of a lot of the Iraqis uh, nations resources went toward fighting ISIS and defeating ISIS. And our help for them was really important. But as that's happening, everything else gets put on hold and the cultural heritage continues to degrade. So how we can help in that time between kinetic operations and stabilization and helping them to stabilize and not create more damage in the meantime, that's where we're lacking, like that immediate help for cultural heritage. Eventually, there's going to be big programs and projects to help recover these sites. But if we could do more for, especially in the civil affairs community, to make that connection to the people on the ground and the militaries that we're training, we have a responsibility to teach them those protective measures, just the same as we have to teach Geneva Conventions. I want, you know, I hope that we're teaching the allies that we're working with by, for, and through the same standards and help them to protect their heritage so that there's something left to save for future generations after these conflicts. That's a great point. And on that note, I want to close this out by asking you where listeners should go to learn more about your work at the Smithsonian or the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield. So the U.S. Committee of the Blue Shield website is www.uscbs.org. And Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative is culturalrescue.si.edu. Thank you very much. Kurt Wagner, director of the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, founder of the U.S. Committee of Blue Shield and retired major in the Army Reserve and Civil Affairs. Thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.